from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Welcome to U.S. Farm Report. I'm Tyne Morgan, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. Nearly two years after 10,000 John Deere workers went on strike, Deere now announcing indefinite layoffs. So is this a sign of trouble brewing in the ag economy? So the fact that the overall view of the overall economy had actually deteriorated was a little bit of a surprise to me. The results are in from the latest Ag Economist's monthly monitor. Well, combines are hitting the field and yields are surprising. Our corn has been anywhere from 210 to 240, which like I said is probably 20 or 30 percent above normal and uh, you know on track to be one of our best years ever. Our harvest tour kicks off in Kansas and Missouri this week and at how boosting soil health may actually begin now. U.S. Farm Report, presented by Pioneer. What's next happens when the name on a cap matches the power of one's purpose. Pioneer, what's next happens here. Now for the news, John Deere announcing it's laying off more than 200 workers from its Harvester Works location in East Moline, Illinois. The company says it notified workers on Wednesday about the decision to cut 225 jobs. Currently, it has around 2,300 employees. In a news release, the company is saying, quote, although John Deere has hired hundreds of employees in the Quad Cities in recent years, the company has consistently stated that each Deere factory balances the size of its production workforce with the needs of individual factory to optimize the workforce at each facility, end quote. It comes at a time when the latest Association of Equipment Manufacturers report shows that combine sales are actually up almost 32 percent compared to last year. The cuts being called an indefinite layoff and they go into effect on October 16th. The news coming on the heels of Detroit car makers announcing more layoffs that they blame on fallout from the United Auto Workers strike. General Motors idling a plant in Kansas City with 2,000 workers because they don't have the auto parts to work with. Jeep and Chrysler say it expects to lay off more than 300 workers in Ohio and Indiana. Well, ag economists' views on the ag economy, well, those are starting to erode. The September Ag Economist's monthly monitor shows a fallout in the ag economy with the lowest view since the survey started. Nearly 60 ag economists are surveyed each month and asked to provide their views on the ag economy compared to last month, last year, as well as the expectation for next year. As you can see, those views were holding steady but dropped off this month. One of the main drivers is the outlook for lower prices for major commodities like corn, higher interest rates, and demand concerns. Those also contributed to the drop. So one question, of course, what's happening to the Chinese economy. There's lots of concerns that China's economy has already slowed or will be slowing in the months ahead since that's a major demand driver. If that were to happen, that'd be a very strong negative. In this country, we're seeing uh, continued economic growth, but those high interest rates are, are indeed having an effect on, uh, on household finances and will probably result in leave some slowdown in consumption uh, over the next year. Economists were also asked to rank commodities. As you can see, they're most bullish on beef cattle, followed by soybeans and then sorghum. They're most pessimistic about wheat, hogs and dairy. There are also continued concerns about consolidation in the livestock sector and even more reduced supplies for beef, pork and chicken that should offer price support. Now, when asked where ag economists expect costs to go for 2024, well, economists think operating interest costs will be up 8.4% but the economists think fertilizer costs will fall 21% compared to what farmers paid this year. 
This week, the Federal Reserve announcing it would be holding its benchmark lending rate steady, with officials waiting for more information to see how previous rate hikes impacted the economy. The decision comes as the U.S. is facing new financial hurdles. That's including a United Auto Workers strike. Along with that, gas prices are hitting record highs for the year, impacting everyone from commuters to farmers. Input costs are through the ceiling. Um, my risk exposure is through the ceiling. It's, it's a risky, scary time. Last year, we put out 31,000 in fuel. I'm scared to even imagine what it's going to be this year. And there's also the possibility of a government shutdown. If that happens, the Bureau of Labor Statistics says it will halt releasing data on metrics, including unemployment and inflation. That would hinder the Federal Reserve's ability to get a complete look at the overall economy. Well, the latest Ag Economist's monthly monitor shows the expectation for another drop in the national yield. And harvest is starting to pick up pace right now, with USDA saying soybean harvest is officially underway and it's running slightly ahead of schedule. The latest crop progress report putting corn harvest at 9%. That's two points ahead of average. Conditions, those dropping slightly with 51% of the crop rated good to excellent, down one point from last week. As for soybeans, 5% is now harvested. That's one point ahead of the five-year average. Condition ratings, well, the same as last week at 52% good to excellent. Cotton harvest running a bit behind, now 9% complete compared to the average of 10%. Winter wheat planting picking up pace, now 15% is in the ground, just one point behind normal. Wheat prices here at home were on the decline earlier this week after the first grain ship departed Ukraine's Black Sea port since the end of the Black Sea grain deal. That's despite Russia's effective blockade of Black Sea facilities since the end of the grain deal in July. The ship was carrying 3,000 tons of wheat. Meanwhile, the UN Secretary General is saying they are continuing to work to revive the initiative. This is not going to be easy and we are seeing an escalation that is very dangerous because not only the Black Sea Initiative was suspended, but we have witnessed a number of bombardments uh, in relation to uh, terminals, food terminals, in relation to warehouses. And this is, of course, a, a, a very serious threat. While the potential reopening of seaports could revive trade routes, there are concerns about the increasing risks in the Black Sea, which is deterring ship owners, crews and insurers. Well, right now, hard red winter wheat exports are the lowest they've been since USDA started keeping records in the early 70s. The University of Illinois looking into it. It says USDA's Economic Research Service has indicated that hard red winter wheat exports are forecast down 10 million bushels this month to 155 million bushels, the lowest on record. And it says that hard red winter wheat supplies have seen a downturn while U.S. corn and soybeans have gained acres. At the same time, there is more competition globally for wheat. That's it for the news. Well, earlier this year, there was talk of a wet harvest. Instead, it's been dry. So will the trend continue? We'll have a check of weather next. U.S. Farm Report weather is brought to you by H&S Manufacturing. With five models ranging from 1,300 to the large 4,200 gallon and the ability to provide an excellent spread pattern, H&S has a top shot side discharge manure spreader to fit your operation. Find out more at the H&S website.
Time now for a check of weather with meteorologist Matt Engelbrecht. Matt, just a few months ago, there were expectations for a wet fall due to the arrival of El Nino. And I know fall is just now officially here, but our model showing that this dryness will continue. Yeah, Tyne, a great observation. We talked about that uh, middle of summer and that uh, there is a very high probability that we're going to settle into an El Nino the pattern going into fall and winter, but also what we talked about uh, was the delay that we just don't flip a switch and get into El Nino. We're starting to see the signs of El Nino taking shape and with that you start to see more of a spread between the extreme uh, wet and the extreme dry. Now this is just a, a quick snapshot between September 26th and September 30th. You're seeing that jet stream really start to move. The difference between an El Nino year and just a normal one will be the amplitude of the jet stream through fall and especially into winter uh, and also possibly into spring. It's the shape of the jet stream that ends up changing. That was about way too long on that, but at least wanted to get to it. So again, wetter than average back here towards the northwest as we start to see a trough try and dig across the United States where that ridge is located. We'll see drier than average conditions. You got this little half circle right here that is going to come from the tropical system that we've been tracking uh, this past weekend. Now starting off as a tropical storm then becomes a remnant low. A uh, bottom line, this is going to be moving to the north where it already has bringing rain uh, to the east coast, including uh, the Carolinas. But by the time we get in the middle of the week, we'll see that dry pattern set up back across the United States. Take a look at the root zone map. So where that rain is going to be coming down, actually kind of need it, but we're kind of getting that tricky spot as well as do we want it in those locations as that harvest starts to take shape. You got to get in that root zone map, uh, extreme drought uh, in and across uh, the Dakotas, uh, but also as far south as Missouri and Nebraska, also down along the coast uh, as well. Also starting to see that drought take shape once again into the Midwest, including uh, Indiana and Michigan. So what's the jet stream going to look like uh, this week? Uh, so we've already talked about where that rain is going to be located. You got kind of that circle, uh, that cutoff low bringing uh, the rain, also the instability to the atmosphere. You got another uh, trough that is going to be moving out to the northeast and into the Atlantic. What sets up and behind it is going to be a ridge of high pressure, keeping things mostly dry through the Midwest. Uh, this next Pacific Northwest trough, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, that's the kind of energy that we look for that's going to bring down some cooler temperatures in and across the United States. So this pattern will start to break down as we get into the middle part of next week. Thanks, Matt. Well, that drier and warmer weather really pushed the crop to mature quickly this year. The dryness also a hurdle for rebuilding the cattle herd with cattle prices reaching new highs. We'll talk about all of that coming up with Arlen Sinnerman and Don Close next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Don Close as well as Arlen Suderman joining us. Arlen, when we look about the, the heat and just some of the dry weather that we continue to see that's been in the forecast and will be in the forecast, you know, hearing about possibly smaller kernels that we're having in harvest right now, when do you think that shows up in our USDA reports? Uh, it should show up in the October report. Um, First of all, the first half of August is very favorable for seed size. It's the last half of August into September that it really turned adversarial for seed size. And I think that's really going to show up in the later maturing crops, particularly later maturing corn, but also to some extent soybeans as well. And when you look at USDA sampling of the fields, 
they weigh the samples that are mature. Well, on the 1st of September, that was 18% of the corn, 16% of the soybeans. It's going to be the majority of it for the October report. That's assuming we don't have a government shutdown and we actually have an October report. Let's hope that we do. Okay, real quick, before we get to Dawn about these historic cattle prices, our Ag Economist monthly monitor that just came out, uh, latest survey showed a 172.9 national corn yield, 49.42 national soybean yield. Does that align with you, Arlen? Yeah, I think the corn yield's probably gonna slip a little bit lower than that. So early results uh, for corn and soybeans, we're seeing some very disappointing yields. We're also seeing some record yields. So that's why I don't put a lot of stock in early yields. But overall, I think the agronomist training and experience I have says that we're probably going to see these yields slip as we get into the later maturing crops. And uh, soybeans below 50, corn right around that 170 area, maybe even a little bit lower, but I'm not ready to say that yet. All right, Don, you're actually joining us from Texas. And you were talking about how surprised you were about how dry it is. So when you look at some of those key producing areas. How long do you think it's going to be before we start rebuilding this herd, Don? I think it's, uh, you know, we will be the first, the first group of calves even available for retention would be the calves that are being weaned now. So, you know, if we take that, that female through the winter, get her to a, a breeding weight, uh, we're, we're talking a full 18 to 24 months down the road. So as you look at, at these record cattle prices that we saw this week, do you think a short-term top is in, or is it still just going to soar? You know, the thing that has surprised me with this, and I understand a lot of that's simply how markets work, but for all of 2023, the market has insisted in trading this market as if it were a sprint. This market's a marathon. We haven't yet gotten to the tightest supply of available feeder cattle supplies, we haven't yet seen any meaningful retention of females to start that rebuilding process. I think the, the market outlook for well into 25 under the best of circumstances uh, is still ahead of us uh, with higher prices to come. I, if you know, the drought condition you mentioned, uh, it, it is not totally out of the, the realm to extend this whole liquidation phase out another year. Arlen, considering all of that, do you think USDA is, is still overestimating feed demand? Yeah, I do. When you look at the number of the beef production projected for the coming year being down, you look at how we've been culling back the swine breeding herd. Um, I, I think they're just too optimistic on it. And frankly, it goes back to the beginning of when they released their first balance sheet back in May for the new marketing year. Uh, had they not increased feed usage and not shown a strong export number, we would have been seeing an ending stocks projection number around 2.6, 2.8 billion bushels. And I don't think they wanted to do that. What that means now is they have a lot of room to reduce demand as they reduce yields. Yeah, Don, later on the show, we want to ask you about demand when it comes to the meat front. I know there's a lot of things that you're watching around the globe. Plus, are we seeing any warning signs when it comes to the ag economy? We'll talk about that coming up in our roundtables later on U.S. Farm Report. Broadband is not the whole answer. Well, is broadband the key to reviving rural America? That's John's World This Week. A few months ago, I read a thoughtful essay about how broadband could be a key to rural community revival. 
now slowly our most rural citizens are gaining uh, decent access to broadband speeds and small towns are adding fiber optic lines. The decline of rural population, the viability of municipalities less than 10,000 is not improving much, however. The author's point was higher quality broadband access would lure hassled urban and suburban dwellers working from home to the small towns. This influx of well-educated, middle-income citizens would revitalize our towns with their numbers, abilities, and wealth. This conclusion for me is doubtful for several reasons. Work from home is fading now, for example. A primary misunderstanding is how bad urban life is compared to country living in the minds of those few of us who actually live in the country, perhaps because many of us have never known anything but rural culture, we make up an image from a mashup of vacation experiences, unbalanced news stories, and pure fiction. Consider how few Hallmark movie plots center on an unhappy small town heroine finding love, community, and true happiness in a large city. To be sure, Fresh air and space are wonderful aspects of our way of life, but we casually overlook the problems with those supposed advantages. Call 911, try to order a pizza, or drive 60 miles to the doctor to be reminded of the life quality trade-offs for that boundless elbow room. Farmers especially often talk about city dwellers as almost another species. If this is true, why would those kinds of humans want to move to a community of our kind of humans, and why would we want them to do so? What interests and opinions would we share with such newcomers? The more we stress our own uniqueness and humble brag about our higher moral values, the more exclusive we appear to outsiders. We do not absorb strangers smoothly or speedily, especially strangers with different values. Small towns which win huge tech factory lotteries are realizing their declining communities will be economically renewed, but markedly changed. Most unnerving for some is what if urban invaders make us more like them than vice versa? Thanks, John. Well, a Minneapolis Moline from the 1930s, Tractor Tales is next. Your next piece of equipment is on MachineryPete.com. Search equipment from dealerships across the country to find what you're looking for. Only on MachineryPete.com. Hey, welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. If you're a mini mo fan, this week's for you. We're going to Oklahoma to check out a 1937 ZTU. Bought it at a antique store. <laughs> so where I got it at. So it was sitting out front for showroom display to bring people into the store. And the guy asked me how I liked his display outside, and I told him I liked it. I would like really like the Moline, and he just said it was for sale and it went from there, it come home with me. I went back home, got a trailer, come back and bought it. As you see, it's the way I bought it. I didn't do anything to this tractor. It was restored almost, I think they told me almost 40 years ago. It's still in good shape. It, it runs good. Starts right up, lights work, everything works on it. 
nice parade tractor plow with. I plowed day and I plowed with it last year. I have a molding two bottom plow for it and we plowed with it last year. Learned to drive on my grandpa's beef farm all raking hay and just have always liked them and enjoyed them. They're easy to work on. They don't eat. So <laughs> they're, they're, I just enjoy them. They're, they're just soothing to work on, calming down. I could sit on this thing all day long now and sit in here and plow this and never crawl off of it. It just calms your mind and just listen to everything. It's just peaceful, so. Well, coming up next, we're hitting the fields for an early look at harvest. We're off to Kansas and Missouri where the yields are surprising. We'll tell you why next. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. Well, 2023 has been another challenging season in states like Kansas and Missouri that faced widespread drought. But for pockets, farmers are pleasantly surprised. Michelle Rook kicks off our I-80 harvest tour this weekend. While widespread drought plagued much of the state of Kansas again this year, there were a few notable exceptions, including here in the Northeast. Ken and Brad McCulley feel very fortunate this season. In a year where nearly 70% of Kansas is under D1 to D4 drought, they're seeing the results of some timely rains. We had a dry spell early, um, like in June. And the end of June into July, we had five inches of rain in June, five inches in July, and then not quite five in August. However, they say they're the exception and you don't have to go very far before the drought and heat are evident. It's pretty close to ideal right here, but west and south of us, it's, it's not near that well off. They've, they're really hurting for moisture. The patterns changed a little bit, but right now it's gone back to they're dry in central and northwest Kansas. As the combines roll through Macaulay's fields, they're not finding the corn they did last year, but still are above APH, so they're pleased. We started on some of our better ground, and the yields were 220, 230, uh, even a little better than that in places. And we went to some of our worst ground, and still hitting the close to 200 mark in places. And while the drought has cut statewide corn yields in Kansas again this year, the average may be above 2022. I don't think it'll be down from last year because last year was pretty low. We were down in the 500 uh, million bushel and I think we'll be up in oh closer to six maybe. He says they did find some tar spot in the corn, but it came so late it may not have hurt yields or test weights, which are running 58 to 60 pounds. And the corn won't need much drying as maturity was pushed by the heat. Our moisture level in the corn right now is, is 17 to uh, 19 percent. The Macaulay's are a couple of weeks away from combining soybeans, but they're not expecting bumper yields. I see soybean yields kind of like corn, not as on the top end as last year, but I, we're going to have 70 plus. Disease pressure played a role, but so did the weather. When that sudden death hit, it those fields are going to be short because we've had it before and it really hurts your yield. In the August, when it got so hot for 10 days, ridiculously hot, and I think that took, took some yield out of the beans. 
In northwest Missouri, Bryant Kagey is also finding some pleasant surprises this harvest. He says they started off dry just like the rest of the state and got the crop planted ahead of normal. We had enough soil, soil moisture to get the crop off to a really good start. Uh, but it was it was really dry and it just kind of hung on through those first few months of the season. The pattern continued mostly dry in his area with just some scattered rain. So their subsoil moisture has been depleted, but he's better off than most with over half of Missouri in D1 to D4 level drought. I pulled up the drought monitor map this morning and there's a little bitty white yellow spot that's right around us and it's just surrounded by red severe drought areas. So really, really fortunate to have caught the rain we did. So some Somehow they're getting above average corn yields on their farm. You know, our corn has been anywhere from 210 to 240, which like I said, is probably 20 or 30% above normal and uh, you know, on track to be one of our best years ever. They were also fortunate to have very little tip back from the heat and stock integrity is solid. The one caveat is heat stress pushed the crop during filling and so the corn is a bit lighter. The test weights of the corn we've sold so far have been kind of on that average, what you'd expect for corn, that 56 to 60, not as high as we had hoped. And this was the first year they've seen tar spot, which crept in late season. I don't think it set in early enough to do a lot of yield damage, but it's certainly going to be something we have to look at going forward uh, for management. While corn harvest is nearly two-thirds done on their farm, it may be a few weeks before they start on soybeans, and expectations are tempered by that dry August weather. I hate to make a prediction, but I would hope uh, mid-50 to 60, which would still be a really good average for us. Plus, he says soybean disease pressure was significant. We have seen a lot of sudden death pressure that came in in that early August time frame. We had all that moisture, beans were planted very early, and uh, we definitely saw, I think there'll be some pockets that have some sub substantial yield loss from sudden death. In both Kansas and Missouri, farmers are glad to have another drought year in the rearview mirror and hope the weather pattern finally changes as they move into 2024. I'm Michelle Rook for U.S. Farm Report. Thanks, Michelle, and she'll actually be back later in the show to talk about improving your soil health and how it begins at harvest. But first, Brazil is a concern not only for crops and competitiveness on the export market, but also beef. We'll tell you why with Don Close and Arlen Suderman next. The I-80 Harvest Tour on U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Case IH. The Farmall has been an iconic partner on the farm for generations. Come celebrate a century of Farmall, the one for all with us at farmall100.com. And by AGI. At AGI, we spend a lot of time focused on product details, making sure you can store your grain how you need to and move it when you need to. Learn more at aggrowth.com. Don Close, Arlen Suderman rejoining us for our marketing roundtables this weekend. All right, Don, you talked about the drought. You talked about how long we could potentially see before we start to rebuild this cattle herd. But when you look at interest rates, you look at some of these other challenges that are facing the cattle industry. What are those hurdles that maybe we're not talking about that could be constraining when it comes to rebuilding this herd? You know, the, the first one is if you look at, at monthly beef exports, uh, the combination of where prices are here in the States, uh, the, the strength of the U.S. dollar, we're clearly seeing a slowdown in, in U.S. beef exports. The other, the other real key factor is, is 
as we keep anticipating the full impact of El Nino here in the States and the benefits that provides us, that's a detriment to Australia. You know, they're, they're at the very beginning phases of uh, drought conditions. After several years of extremely aggressive prices and herd rebuilding, they're now entering that liquidating phase. They're having problems with uh, enough slaughter capacity to meet the, the numbers of cattle that are trying to come to market. That's increasing their exports specifically to China. That in turn is causing a slowdown of beef exports from Brazil to China. Uh, I think when we, we see a very one-sided view of the incredible beef market that we have here in the States right now, the global market's just not in that position. Well, Don, you mentioned El Nino. Arlen, if we do see more favorable weather for next growing season than we saw this growing season, I mean, yields are impressive considering the challenges that we saw. But if we do see more favorable weather, yet the demand picture doesn't change for corn, what do you think that could do for prices next year? Well, that's kind of a mixed story right now as we look at El Nino, because uh, here for the United States, we would anticipate big yields. We anticipated big yields this year, but that transition was slow to come about and left us dry. But if we continue into next year, which the models are currently showing, we would anticipate yields well over 180 bushels per acre, maybe 182, 183 at a time when we have reduced herd size in order to, to utilize that corn. So that's a, a problem on the demand side. We have Brazil that's got a big crop this year. But I think if there's opportunities out there on the corn market, it goes down to the fact that we tend to see a late start to, uh, to the rainy season in Brazil when we have an El Nino and we tend to see an early end to it. That doesn't really slow down soybean production, but it does tend to put significant risk on Safrina corn production, which is their big corn crop. Well, Brazil definitely creating a lot more competition in the grain space when it comes to exports. But Don, they are really getting aggressive when it comes to beef production too. Yes, they are. And, and I think that will continue. I, you know, we need to keep in mind that we're talking different qualities of beef designated to not only different market, different countries, but different markets within those countries. Uh, I'm, I'm comfortable with where we're at with that. I don't, I don't see a lot of pressure to the U.S. market uh, from growth in Brazil at this point in time. All right. So if you're talking to cattle producers today, looking at this impressive market, looking at some of the watchouts and the hurdles ahead, what is your advice, Don? The number one advice I have, I, as I said earlier, I think there's still room to the upside in this market. Where I do have concerns is that you look at the reply or the prices that we're seeing for replacement cattle. Uh, they're certainly at today's levels, hedgeable opportunities. And with the risk that is inherent, not only from these price levels, but with just so much noise in the, in the domestic and global market, if a, if a customer is not willing to go into this market with a, a full risk management plan in place, I would discourage him from getting in at all. All right, Arlen, as harvest picks up pace, seeing an open window for that, what is your advice for producers right now? Yeah, it's really going to come down to basis, and that's going to vary quite a bit. Uh, with the problems in the Mississippi and the Panama Canal, we may see more of a pull to the Pacific Northwest, so the Dakotas, Minnesota may see some more opportunities for basis there, uh, whereas the river markets along the Mississippi may see weaker basis and more problematic there. But if you see some good basis opportunities, 
you need to be looking at that flat price opportunities. If those basis opportunities are weak, then you look at some more deferred possibilities. Overall, I think we saw some fairly aggressive pricing early on from some of the higher price, advanced pricing. So the farmer's not real anxious right now. And I think any sales that he makes are generally with deferred payments after the first of the year into the new tax year right now. All right, Arlen, Don, thank you so much for joining us. We need to take a quick break and then we'll have much more right here on U.S. Farm Report. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by Smart Nutrition. Experience the latest, most efficient system for delivering sulfur and phosphate to meet your crop's needs with Smart Nutrition, MAP plus MST. Learn more at smartnutritionmst.com. As the combines start rolling across the country, farmers are focused on taking this year's crops off the land. But there are some farmers who are also focused on planting crops in the fall to help them flip their soil. Farm Journal's Michelle Rook is back again to show us how. As farmers move into the fall harvest season, it's a great time to start thinking about improving soil health, including implementing cover crops. SDSU soil specialist Anthony Bly is also a farmer that's used soil health practices for 30 plus years. He says there are various late season cover crops farmers can plant depending on their goals and climate. We have to think about where we're at as well what latitude we're at and how much time we really have left to work with. He says for farmers in a corn soybean rotation, it's a little more challenging to get a cover crop planted, but they can look at winter annual grasses like wheat, winter triticale and cereal rye. Rye would be an awesome uh, cover crop to fly in on corn at physiological maturity, uh, catch some rain, rain is very important. That uh, grain can, can germinate on the soil surface and will be there next spring. And uh, what a great tool for, for managing water. Bly plants a 12-way mix on his own farm. I have brassicas in there, I have legumes in there, I have a few warm seasons, just a couple. Two of the 12 are warm season, but, but predominantly all the rest are, are cool season species in, in the mix. And I've got every one of them in there for diversity. Checking his fields prior to the harvest, Bly sees firsthand the benefits of his soil health system, including below ground activity like night crawlers. The biological life is, is um, cycling the crop residues. And that's a great thing because we know with that cycling, there's, there's nutrients that become available for the following crops. The Conservation Technology Information Center is providing technical assistance to farmers participating in the Farmers for Soil Health program in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and South Dakota. The program is devoted to increasing the usage of cover crops on corn and soybean acres. We are educating uh, and, and will help to implement in any way that we can, uh, and, and that means mainly information. Um, but we want it to be, cover crops is going to be the huge focus and how to utilize those, what works, what doesn't, and, and whether it'll work on your farm uh, or not. Those are the types of things we want to get into. Schmidt says cover crops are vital to improving soil health, but can be tricky to incorporate into a farmer's rotation, but they do have long-term benefits. From generation to generation, uh, everybody's trying to do their best to protect the soil, and, and there's not one answer to that. 
every every piece of ground is different and and we need to focus on what's important to that family uh, they know the ground best what can we do to assist them in achieving the goals the program is being funded by climate smart commodity grants from usda and will also provide payments for new and existing cover crop users the goal is to sign up 30,000 acres of cover crops in south dakota during the first three years of the program i'm michelle work reporting for u.s farm report Thanks, Michelle. Well, economists are worried about the slowdown in China, but the stockpiling strategy in China, could it be good for grains? That's customer support next. Well, in August, China stopped exporting two rare minerals essential for manufacturing semiconductors. But it's China's strategy of stockpiling commodities like grains. That's the topic of customer support this week. From Tracy Lockwood in Lanford, Pennsylvania. We frequently talk about China's stockpiling of grain. In light of supply chain problems, inflated prices, and expected food shortages, what are we doing to ensure that the U.S. has its own stockpiles? Do we have a strategic supply of food somewhere? Should we? What plans do we have in place to shore up this country's food security? Now, this question is from much earlier in the year, so some of this stuff has gotten better, like the supply problems. When talking about stockpiles, many picture huge granaries or literal piles. Chinese stockpiles, like all Chinese numbers lately, have a large margin of error, but are mostly owned by the government, we think. We really do have our own reserves almost completely in private hands, except for some dairy products. Think back a few days to the widely anticipated World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, or WASDE report, which remains the topic of much discussion. This report gives very accurate inventories of grains, meat, and milk for the world and for the U.S., since those are commodities that can be stored for reasonable periods. The last column is the ending stocks for the marketing years for the U.S. This is essentially our stockpile, owned by grain merchandisers, processors, or producers themselves. While some worry about ample supplies for future disruptions, Farmers look at them as burdensome surpluses which push prices down. The ratio of ending stocks to use is another measure of our cushion. Note that the historically critical food grain, wheat, has the highest relative stocks. Another factor in, is the commodity, commodities which can be stockpiled are raw ingredients, animal feed, or fuel inputs. Farmers who complain consumers think food comes from a supermarket don't get their own supper from their grain bin, after all. In fact, about three-quarters of our actual food is considered ultra-highly processed. The U.S. produces 90% of our own domestic consumption. Some catastrophe overseas could interrupt banana supplies, but we'll sure have plenty of bread, meat, and milk. Finally, it is a cold comfort to acknowledge that the U.S. consumers are wealthy by global standards, so food shortages will hit poor nations hardest. We can just buy more. Food security in the U.S. is not about supply, but it's about distribution. Thanks, John. Well, in the past 20 years, suicide rates increased by almost 50% in rural areas. The statistics are staggering. That's next. 
Well, it's a heavy topic to end the show with, but an important one this weekend. September is Suicide Prevention Month, but did you know that the rate of suicide among farmers is three and a half times higher than the general population? It's true and something that is a sign of the daily stress within farming. Stephanie Weatherly is Chief Clinical Officer for Psychiatric Medical Care, a company that provides mental health services specifically to rural communities. They're in 130 rural hospitals today, and she says the stigma surrounding mental health is still there. Uh, between 2000 and 2020, suicide rates increased 46% in rural areas compared to 27.3% in metro areas, according to the CDC. So we see a higher rate of suicide in rural communities. 45% of farmers and rancher suicides in the last 15 years were committed by people aged 65 and older. Weatherly says there are subtle signs to watch to recognize when someone's in trouble. That includes an increase in short-term illnesses, chronic illnesses, or simple changes in someone's routine. Another sign on farms could be someone who has more accidents on their farm more frequently. She says if you notice any of these, say something because having those conversations can help. We know that 80% of people who suffer from depression can become, can go into total remission. So in other words, if you are struggling with depression, you can get better. You can get better. You just need to get the help that you need. And help is also available with the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. You can text or call 988. Well, that does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Thank you so much for watching. We're continuing our College Roadshow next weekend. We're off to the University of Nebraska. We hope you join us as we work to build on our tradition. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.